the title stuck with me, Performing the Scriptures, and I just realized that drama also is a kind of performance. An actor has a score, a script, and instead of producing music, you produce movement on a stage with your body, and you produce words and actions, and that's your interpretation. And then I thought, it's all going to come together now, this is the model I need to use with my students in class, that doctrine is a guide for right and performance of our holy script, our holy score. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. I must admit that one theologian that I find myself reading again and again, and I just can't help returning to, is Kevin Van Hooser. If you are familiar with any of Kevin's writings, you know that he has a special gift for communicating sometimes difficult doctrines of the faith, faith complex doctrines even, in a way that uh, brings the truths of those doctrines uh, home Uh, not just for the average pastor or Christian, but also for us theologians as well. Uh, He also has a way of bringing us from the drama of the Bible, uh, the the story that God himself is not only uh, written as the script writer, but uh, the story in which he's the main actor. Kevin has a great way of bringing us from that drama to doctrine, uh, that transition that is so important for understanding how we move from what God has done to the theological conclusions we should draw and their implications for the Christian life. I thought, wouldn't it be great to have Kevin on the Credo podcast, uh, not only to talk about so many of his theological contributions in the past, uh, some of them that I've just mentioned, but also to let you as the listener Uh, behind the scenes, behind the curtain, so to speak, uh, to let you uh, hear Kevin's own story of how he became a systematic theologian and why he loves being a systematic theologian and what that means for him personally. With that said, Kevin, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for those kind words. You know, there are many... Uh, many listeners uh, of the Credo podcast that are no doubt familiar with any number of your publications, but they may not be familiar with your own story. Uh, what is it that, uh, you know, being a system, the systematic theologian that you are today, uh, how did that journey first begin? And, and what what was it that, or, or maybe there were a number of things that moved you to say, you know what, I want to devote my mind and energy and even my heart to a, a life theological? Yes. Uh, as a child, I, I don't remember as a five-year-old saying I wanted to grow up and be a systematic theologian. So something must have happened. Some people must have gotten involved in my life, and, and that is what happened. Um, I was privileged to know 
from a very young age a Bible scholar, and I had no idea how scholarly he was at the time, but this is a person uh, with an international reputation. Um, I just knew him as someone I enjoyed hearing preach, and he was also the man who baptized me when I was 10 years old, just a friend of the family. And his name was Bob Gundry, Robert Gundry, a New Testament professor at Westmont College, as I grew up in the Santa Barbara area. So he was in my life, and that's just something that God uses, as I'll make clear. But um, I didn't really feel the need for theology until I went to college. Uh, I went to Amherst College in Massachusetts as a freshman, and I was a, I was a Christian, but I was asked questions that I had never been asked before, and you know, kind of teased about being a Christian, and all I had at the time was a little paperback book by John Stott entitled Your Mind Matters. Mm. And uh, I, I came to be convinced that it did. I did not have good answers to the questions these, um, you know, atheist freshmen or skeptical freshmen were asking me. And to some extent, I underwent a, a kind of persecution there, just because I had to take stands on certain types of behavior as well as belief. And I didn't have as good a reason for those stands that I took as I would have liked. So uh, while I was at Amherst, I, I got interested in theology, realized that it probably wasn't the best place to study theology. So I wrote a letter to Robert Gundry, and, and uh, I kind of took the role of the prodigal son, you know. I was, I was in the far country. I was on the East Coast making merry with these secular freshmen and uh, asked him if he thought I should go to Westmont, where he was teaching, and get a Christian education. And he wrote a fantastic letter, you know, kind of taking the role of the father of the prodigal son, mm. and he said, you know, come to us and we will prepare a feast. We will roast the fatted calf of academic instruction until <laughs> it is well done. Uh. And I just thought, you know what, that's, that's just... You know, that kind of interest and uh, pastoral insight. So I left Amherst College, went to Westmont, and was very interested in theology and apologetics, you see, because mm -hmm. I had these questions and I wanted to make a defense of my faith. So apologetics was a, was a big interest, as was New Testament, because Robert Gundry was a New Testament scholar. So I wanted to be a New Testament scholar. So I put a lot of energy into Greek. And with other religious studies majors at Westmont, intended to be a New Testament scholar because we all wanted to be like Bob Gundry. Um, to his credit, in one of his the office hour sessions, uh, he took me aside and, and said, "You know, I, I think I think you should do systematic theology." Mm -hmm. And at, at first, I was crestfallen because I thought he doesn't want me. Ah. <laughs> you know, I'm not good enough. Uh, but. Rather, I think he just saw that I was the kind of person that had lots of interests, that could think philosophically. That was my second major. And you know, I think, looking back on it, I'm not exactly sure what he saw, but I'm so thankful that he intervened and stopped me <laughs> from being uh, only a New Testament scholar, because as a systematic theology, you get the New Testament and more. <laughs> 
so I've never I've never lost my love for the New Testament and New Testament theology, which I think began with um, a class in New Testament theology I took from him, and I just remember the main term paper was the assignment was read the New Testament and state the central theme, <laughs> and uh, you know that was probably the hardest assignment I've ever had in college. Wow. Wow, it's uh, I'm, I'm always amazed that uh, as as I I talk to so many different theologians, I'm always amazed it this type of story tends to be uh, so pivotal uh, in a, in a theologian's life. Uh, the influence yeah. of someone like Gundry, I am uh, so uh, intrigued by just his insight and wisdom that uh, so early on he recognized, you know, I know you have a love for New Testament uh, studies and New Testament theology, but what about systematics? Uh, that, yeah. that, now, at that point, you've mentioned how, you know, you were crushed at first. Uh, you thought, oh, you know, does he, maybe he doesn't want me, those, those sort of things. Uh, uh, as you started uh, in the days and years ahead, as you started to explore systematics, uh, it, 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 was it at a certain point that you realized, well, I think he was right? Yeah. Uh, well, let me, yeah, let me, and let me fill in one of the blanks. When he told me that, um, it wasn't just the insight into me, it was also his read of the situation. He said, you know, we have plenty of evangelicals now going to Great Britain, getting PhDs. The New Testament is pretty well served by evangelicals, but I remember at the time he told me there were only two people. This is at least how I remember it. He said there were only two people who were doing, you know, the kind of systematic theology he thought should be done, and that was Carl F. H. Henry and Bernard Ram. Mm. And, and so the point was, he said we have all these exegetes uh, getting ready, you know, to step into their roles as New Testament professors. He didn't see the next generation preparing to be theologians. So it was partly his read of me, partly his read of the situation. But, yeah, very quickly, once I got into the topic, I thought, I, I'm enjoying this. This is meeting a deep need, because one of the questions I had at college, and it persisted through seminary and into my doctoral studies, was the question, what does it mean to be biblical? You see, that's a kind of a philosophical question, right? It wasn't, mm -hmm. what does the Bible say? It was the question, what does it mean to be biblical? And I, I just never was able to shake that question, because everyone claimed to be biblical, right? But they were saying different things. There was conflict. I wanted to dig down deeper and ask the, question, the prior question, the question prior to exegesis, perhaps, is what does it mean to be biblical? And yet, as I've learned, even that question has to be governed by Scripture and theology. So mm. that's, that's my quest in a nutshell. Uh, just out of curiosity, was there ever a point you know, down the road, once you were you know, jumped headfirst into systematics, that uh, you had a follow-up conversation with Gundry? Uh, oh, yes. You know what? Uh, I have follow-up uh, conversations with him still. Okay. Um, he is alive and well and lucid, mm. and yeah, he's been a constant conversation partner over the years. In fact, uh, I was able to edit a feshrift for him with 
two of his other students. And the theme we chose for the Feshrif was reconsidering the relationship between biblical theology and systematic theology. And so a number of his former students wrote essays on that topic. He was responding to something he had written in his book, Jesus the Word and John the Sectarian. In any case, what I remember from that, this is just a few years ago, Bob wrote each of us authors uh, not only a thank you note, but an in-depth engagement with the essays we had written. Mm. And I just remember being so impressed that, you know, it's the ultimate compliment, right? The ultimate compliment is not just saying thank you, but is actually listening and dialoguing with what you've written. So he, we thought we were giving him a gift, and then he ended up giving us a precious gift back, his his very intelligent and insightful interaction with each of our essays. You know, that is, uh, I hope to those listening, uh, some of them may find themselves in, in your shoes, uh, in, in which they are on this theological pilgrimage, uh, perhaps as a student, maybe as a pastor. Uh, either way, I, I hope that uh, our listeners are, are noting just how important these relationships are. You know, we're not just doing theology as theologians in isolation from one another. Uh, sometimes it's thought of that way. You know, we're just up in our ivory tower, uh, secluded. Uh, but actually, there is meant to be healthy, good, biblical, theological interaction with one another, uh, mentor to student, student to student. And um, goodness, Kevin, in your life, uh, you see the, the fruit of it in, in so many ways. Now, I, I have to ask this next question because uh, we're talking about your own story and uh, journey into systematics, but anyone who's read uh, any of the books that you've written uh, knows that uh, the theme of drama, or, or maybe we could say theodrama, uh, has become central in your thought. And um, in light of that, uh, maybe you could uh, just uh, elaborate. How, how, at what point do you move from, you know, your, your writing or in your thinking through systematics? What point does this theme in particular become uh, a major one in your own mind? And was there, uh, what, what influences, and was there a, a particular theologian that, that led you in that direction? Yeah. So, again, I see uh, the providence of God leading to this, because I didn't just sit down and think, you know, I need a new metaphor for my theology. Mm. It, it came about kind of organically. So uh, let me mention three things. Uh, first of all, when I started teaching theology, I, got, I quickly got the impression that a number of my seminary students were there only because it was a requirement. And there was a kind of prejudice that doctrine didn't really have a lot to do with the life of the Church. And I realized pretty quickly on in my teaching career, I had to be something of a cheerleader for theology, and apparently the burden of proof was on me <laughs> to mm. explain or to try to show that, yes, doctrine does have something to contribute to the Church. The burden of proof was on me. So that's one factor. I, that, that kind of set me on a search. Then secondly, uh, I'm an amateur pianist, and I've known for a long time that, that um, interpreting musical texts, we call them scores, 
the ultimate interpretation is performance. And I had a really good piano teacher when I was in college by the name of John Nordquist, and he helped me to see that, that I wasn't just playing notes. I was interpreting. There were decisions to be made. You know, how do you play this passage? And I have a distinct memory also of him not liking the sound I was producing on a certain piece. And he scribbled something on my score, and it was the words, love these notes. Mm. And that, that gave me pause. This, basically, he was telling me my interpretation wasn't charitable <laughs> of this particular passage. And then I thought, well... You know, a pianist, my whole role as a pianist is to realize the intentions of the author-composer, and the way I realize those intentions is by performing it in a way that shows that I loved what he wrote. And so, do you see the connection? Such an... Interpretation. Interpretation is a kind of performance. And then I realized, well, there are other kinds of uh, performances that we give of text and drama was one of them. And that reminded me of a paper I heard my doctoral supervisor give when I was doing my doctoral studies in Cambridge. And his paper was called Performing the Scriptures. And I believe he used a musical analogy as well, but the title stuck with me, Performing the Scriptures, and I just realized that drama also is a kind of performance. An actor has a score, a script, and instead of producing music, you produce movement on a stage with your body, and you produce words and actions, and that's your interpretation. And then I thought, it's all going to come together now, this is the model I need to use with my students in class, that doctrine is a guide for right in performance of our holy script, our holy score. And we do make music when we interpret music. Let's call it doxology, right? All of life should be doxological insofar as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices and in praise of God. So it just all came together. Um, after a while, all these ingredients came together, my, my being a pianist, my hearing this lecture on performing the scriptures, and then just uh, trying to bring doctrine to life in the classroom. We've been talking to Kevin Van Hooser and his journey into systematic theology, but let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We're back from our break and ready to continue our theological conversation with Kevin Van Hooser. I, I really love the way you've, you've put it there, uh, that doctrine, uh, and 
this is something on this podcast we're, we're constantly coming back to and uh, something that I, I, I so want to emphasize with our listeners. Uh, doctrine isn't just uh, something out there that you eventually get to. Uh, you know, once you, you put aside all the exegesis and, and all the hard work, uh, it, it's not just something you check off in terms of, you know, doctrinal tenets and sounding orthodox, but it's actually, as you've just described it, it's meant to be a guide um, to, to performing Scripture itself. Uh, you've called Scripture the script, and uh, doesn't that beautifully combine, uh, what a metaphor that is to combine uh, on the one hand, uh, what doctrine is meant to be for us as interpreters, but then also the divine author himself, which leads uh, to another another issue I'd love to to ask you about. Um, you know, we've mentioned uh, drama and theodrama and how you came into that world, um, but you've also then uh, done quite a bit of work in theological interpretation, uh, what some have called TIS. Uh, goodness, it's been over a decade now, I think, uh, that you've been writing on on this topic. Uh, maybe you could connect the dots between, okay, you're, you're transitioning from just, you know, a basic understanding system of systematics to this, uh, this, this enlightening uh, experience of, of drama and, and, and how that uh, categorizes doctrine. Uh, how then do you move from that to what you call theological interpretation? And, and uh, what, what would you say to our listeners as to that, that movement as a whole? Okay. Well, so again, my first question was, what does it mean to be biblical? And then I see doctrine as a help for us performing the biblical text. Um, the, I guess the key point for this place to begin is just is saying that for me as a theologian, it's all about biblical interpretation. You know, theologians are accountable to the biblical text. I don't want to speculate for one second, really. I want my thought about God and the gospel to be accountable to what God has taught us in many different literary forms in Scripture. So... I'm, you know, I've never, I, I don't think of myself as a philosophical theologian. I have a healthy respect for philosophy and what it can do, but it's always a kind of secondary ministerial thing. Theology, first and foremost, is a form of biblical interpretation. It's a way of thinking through what the Bible has said, what God has said in the Bible, the presuppositions, the implications, and so on. Having said that, um, as a theologian, I also recognize that we read the Bible not in a vacuum, but in very particular contexts. And, and I happen to be living after the Enlightenment, after the age of biblical criticism. And if you read a little bit in church history, you realize uh, something happened. Something <laughs> happened on the way to modernity. And we don't read the Bible the way you know the church fathers used to read it. So that raises lots of questions. And as I looked into that, because I, I am interested in biblical interpretation, I realized that the biggest change that was worked at the Enlightenment is that what used to be read as the Word of God is now read, at least in the Academy, as the Word of Men only. That is, it's a man-made product with all the you know, uh, conditions that appertain thereto. 
so that and so then what also happens is I think there is a time in the academy where people do not read the Bible as the Word of God, and so it's criticized like other documents of the university, and uh, that it kind of inhibits our reading it as God's Word. So. When I use the term theological interpretation of Scripture, what I have first and foremost in mind is reading the Bible as God's Word for the people of God, with the people of God, that is, past and present, and the communion of the saints. And so the good things about what you call TIS is that it's put that agenda, reading the Bible as God's Word for the people of God, it's put it back on the map. It's now a talking point. There's a theological journal devoted to this. There's a theological dictionary devoted to this. There are sections at the Society of Biblical Literature now in the Academy devoted to this. And there are now several commentary series that are intentional about getting this back. So I think the good thing about it is that it's put the question of what it is to read the Bible as God's Word back on the front burner, and I believe the intention is to, is to serve the Church, to relocate the Bible back into the Church, where it's not just a book, it's Scripture. Mm. Now, having said that, because you're right, it has been a few years since we've been dealing with this, having said that, there are some disappointments uh, that I associate with TIS, the Theological Interpretation of Scripture. First, um, it's an ambiguous movement. Uh, people hear it, and they aren't quite clear what it means. I think some people have the impression that in TIS, the community's reading is more important than the author's intention. And so they, uh, some of my exegete friends would be very nervous about TIS because they feel it gives short shrift to the author's intention and grammatical historical reading and so on. But probably my biggest disappointment about the movement is that it, it has proven divisive. Mm. I was, when I first got involved, I was hoping that theological interpretation of Scripture would heal the wall of hostility that too often continues to divide biblical scholars and systematic theologians, even in the seminary. And I, I've always felt that this divide, this disciplinary divide, is very regrettable because you can divide this, these departments up in a seminary. You can have students take exegesis courses, and you can have them take systematic theology courses. But if these two departments aren't working in sync, then it's totally up to pastors to integrate, right? It's the pastor that has to figure out, how do I read the Bible not simply as a historical text, but as the Word of God for the people of God? And so that is why I had got involved in the first place in theological interpretation of Scripture. First, because theology is a kind of reading Scripture, and then second, because pastors are the ones that have to pull it all together, and I felt that some critical commentaries and some systematic theologies weren't helping pastors to uh, bridge that ugly ditch. 
so insightful into a movement that, if we can, if it's appropriate to call it that, uh, a movement that uh, has been in many ways eye-opening and helpful. But as you just mentioned, Kevin, uh, it, it's so helpful to hear from you. Uh, you're at the, the start of uh, theological interpretation and hearing ha- your original intentions and even some of your disappointments, but your original intentions uh, for what you are trying to achieve and, and what you still continue to achieve. Uh, I think in so many yep. ways it's commendable. So much for, uh, so much for us oriented attention. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's commendable so much for that very reason. Uh, and, and while, you know, you've mentioned authorial intention, uh, maybe we could camp out on that for a minute because uh, when we think of, you know, the challenges to being a theologian today, uh, well, postmodernism is certainly one uh, that uh, one that's posed some significant challenges to evangelicals, uh, especially when it comes to what we say about authorial intent. Now, of course, I, I You've written uh, on postmodernism in a, in a number of ways. Uh, you know, the book that immediately comes to mind is "Is There Meaning in This Text?" I think I'm right. I, I, you told me at one point we we had a conversation at one point in which you told me uh, you were uh, overseas and uh, you you essentially locked yourself in a in a very tiny room office and you weren't sure if you're going to to make it through uh, this book and and you you did of course you came out of it and. Uh, uh, have something uh, quite significant to say about it. Uh, maybe you could retell some of that story. I mean, why in the world would you uh, embark on this uh, overwhelming task of of not only describing uh, postmodernism in all of its variety, but then even giving your own critique and uh, trying to understand, okay, what are areas where sympathetic but also critical of it? Yes. So, um, I guess the situation, again, is critical here. I was in Edinburgh at the time, teaching at the University of Edinburgh. Because I had written my dissertation on Paul Ricoeur's narrative theory, the comparative literature department of Edinburgh University asked me to have a kind of guest slot and talk to master's students in comparative literature about Paul Ricoeur in their literary theory seminar. And I thought, that sounds fun. So I did that. And it was an eye-opening experience. There were master's students from all over Europe there. Again, this isn't in a Christian environment, right? It's a sector university. But we were discussing literary theory. And I, I met postmodern readers, you know, up close, face-to-face. And it also became clear to me that every strategy for reading that existed in the academy eventually was brought to bear by someone on how they interpreted Scripture. And I thought, wow, if these literary theories are out there, what's going to happen when people start reading the Bible according to these theories? Mm. That was the question that had impelled me to look into Paul Ricoeur in the first place, but he was very conservative compared to the postmoderns. So... Um, it, that's, that's why I got interested. I was also leading a seminar in biblical interpretation at the University of Edinburgh and my faculty. And again, uh, you know, people were bringing all sorts of theories to bear on how they were reading Scripture. And I think the insight that postmoderns had was that 
you know, you can't simply be a scholar. Every scholar is situated, right? They reflect, their way they read reflects their, their class, their place in culture, their gender. Everything became situated, and then it looked as though everybody had the right to read in their own way. And that struck me as, it sounds like we're going back to the period of the judges, right? When people read in ways that are right in their own eyes. Hmm. So... For all those reasons, I I just couldn't find help uh, in other places as to how to respond to these postmoderns. And so I I had to dig down deep and ask questions, what is an author? What is a text? Do readers have any responsibility whatsoever? Because these master students I was teaching, they responded to me trying to commend Paul Recur to them. They said, who are you to tell us how we should read? So I, I made the suggestion that there's an ethics of reading, and they would have none of it. You know, who are you to tell us how we ought to read? Mm. So again, I just quickly leapt ahead to the implications for biblical authority if people came to Scripture with that attitude. Um, biblical authority would be, would be a nonsense. It, would, it wouldn't get off the ground. So those were some of the reasons that led me to spend several years in my closet uh, working on on postmodern literary theory and its implications for reading the Bible. Well, Kevin, I'm so glad that you did. Now, I mean, we've been we're, we're sort of jumping around here, and, and I, I hope that uh, our listeners are getting a feel for for your own journey. Uh, we, we know we've been talking about uh, how you started off as a systematic theologian, how, how you even became one. Uh, we've also been discussing why uh, the, the category of drama or theodrama became uh, so central uh, to uh, not, not just as a convenient category, but uh, as something that was really a paradigm shift in, in how you were trying to communicate theology to some of your students. And of course, uh, from there, theological interpretation and then the challenges of postmodernism. Uh, we've been more or less on the offensive here, but uh, maybe we could take a step back and just talk about something that is so intrinsic. Uh, th- I've noticed it's so intrinsic to the way you do theology, and that is the Trinity. Uh, you've never, you've never written, say, a, a tome on the Trinity per se. Uh, but those who are paying attention to the way you're approaching theology will notice that, uh, well, it's Trinitarian through. And through, uh, you, you've said at one point, uh, becoming a Christian theologian means developing a Trinitarian habit of mind. Uh, why is it so, so critical, so crucial uh, that theologians see every doctrine of the faith through this Trinitarian hermeneutic? As you've already been emphasizing how important biblical interpretation is, why must it also be Trinitarian? Yeah, great question, and I think, I think you're right in your observation. Even in the book, Is There a Meaning in This Text? Uh, it was structured in a Trinitarian way. I, I tried to correlate God the Father with author, God the Son with text, and God the Spirit with reader. So you're right. I think from the very start, there's been a Trinitarian framework. Uh, just a slight correction. Um, I did write an essay on the triune God for the Cambridge Companion to Evangelical Theology. Of course, that's not a tome, but it was an essay. And um, 
I did write a book on the doctrine of God. It's called Remythologizing Theology, and the tri- Trinity does figure prominently there. Mm. But you're right. I haven't written a book per se on the doctrine of the Trinity. The reason I think the Trinity is so important, however, is because I'm a Christian theologian. I don't just believe in God. I believe in the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's not just a matter of, you know, identifying myself with Nicene orthodoxy. Um, This, to me, gets at the heart of reading the Bible. I, I see the doctrine of the Trinity as a kind of summary of the whole story of salvation, um, uh, a, a summation of the gospel in a formula, almost. But um, I understand the gospel to be, you see, the announcement that filial fellowship with the Father is ours in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that the logic and the story of the gospel that we have in Scripture collapse unless we have a firm Trinitarian framework, because Father, Son, and Spirit must all be God for that gospel to be good news. And I I do think this is really the key here, that the Trinity and the gospel uh, are mutually uh, implicating. No. I think I agree also with Fred Sanders wrote a very good book on this called The Deep Things of God. And in that book, his, one of his basic themes is that the Trinity is part and parcel of the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. And again, this picks up things that were known in the early church. The, you know, they had the formula that the outward works of the Trinity are indivisible. And the idea is that everything God does, all three persons are involved in. So it's just, that's what I mean by the habit of mind. If you're going to think Christianly about God and the gospel, you have to think in Trinitarian terms. You know, whenever we talk about the gospel as Christians, as evangelical Christians, uh, so, so often we fail to do just that. Um, I, I think uh, of even the way we evangelize and uh, present the gospel to those who've never heard it before, um, often we can sound as though the Trinity is uh, something of secondary importance or, or perhaps even irrelevant to the gospel message. Uh, Kevin, you, you've been so helpful uh, because uh, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what book uh, I'm reading that, that, that you've written, uh, no matter what book it is, uh, this Trinitarian lens, um, it, it comes out again and again Uh, no matter whether you're talking about sin, salvation, the gospel itself, or the doctrine of God, uh, it it, it tends to pervade, as it should, um, not just your writing as a theologian, but uh, the way you even approach theology. Uh, So helpful. Now, I I have to mention, as we finish up, I have to mention one other thing that I've, over the years, I've grown to, to appreciate This is something that uh, is not on the surface um, uh, so much as it is just the DNA of of what you do. And and that is the humility that characterizes you as a theologian. I I think that uh, for those uh, maybe in the academy or in the church, when they think of theologians, 
humility is uh, maybe not something that comes to mind. Uh, they, they tend to have a very different picture of, of what a theologian is, but uh, you have turned that on its head, uh, and, and you have made humility not just a, a, a characteristic that, that, should, uh, that, that should color a theologian, but you've argued that humility is a theological virtue that must be present. Uh, you've turned to someone like Augustine, for example, I, I believe a theologian you've relied on a number of times uh, to, to talk about how humble he was as, as a theologian, even writing revisions uh, towards the end of his life, uh, pointing out his own mistakes and, and how he's learned in the process. Uh, it is... It really is a hard balance, uh, I, I think. Maybe some people out there are wondering, why is it so difficult for theologians? You know, why, why is humility so foreign? I think it's a hard balance because as, as a theologian, you're trying to uh, argue for and contest for the truth. But this, and so certainly that requires boldness, and uh, you don't want to compromise. But at the same time, uh, if we do that in a way, uh, well, in a way that's arrogant or in a way that just doesn't capture the spirit of, of the Bible itself, it can actually uh, shoot us in the foot. Uh, the humility is absent. Uh, so let me, let me just close by asking you this. Um, are there ways that uh, aspiring theologians, uh, maybe some of your own students or our listeners, uh, are there ways that they should be cultivating uh, this mindset of humility as they go about theology? Yeah, it's a, a very important point. I think the way we bear witness is almost as important as the what of our witness. Uh, I, I'm a big believer that the form should match and be adequate to the content. Uh, I work hard to, and that's another reason why I think drama has been important to me. I think the content of the Christian gospel is dramatic. It's not a matter of an idea. It's of what God has done. That's drama. So this is, this is relevant, because at the heart of Christian faith is the cross of Christ and is Christ himself. Uh, Paul says, have this mind among you. This is Philippians 2. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus' own humility, his pouring himself out for others. Now, that's not exactly intellectual humility, but I think the idea that Jesus thinks and encourages us to think of others as more important than ourselves, that, that's the essence of humility. Um, and again, uh, for me, I cultivate, I think the easiest way to cultivate a, a you know, humility is just to be honest with yourself <laughs> and to, to get real. Um, you can also travel. Uh, that's a wonderful way to become wiser. You can travel through time by reading classic books, and that, that's often you know, a humbling experience to realize that there are people who are a lot smarter than you. You can travel across space by visiting other cultures, and that just helps to see how parochial or partial you know, your own way of thinking and doing things are. So you, it opens you up, you see, to the possibility the actuality that other people are just as committed to finding out the truth and being good disciples as you are. I think that's, that's one part of it. Um, another part is this, 
And this is something I had to learn, and unfortunately I did not learn it until after I got out of seminary. But the key for me was to care more about the truth than about being right. Because I was kind of defensive, you know, at one point in my life, kind of maybe insecure and maybe too reactive in my approaches. I cared more about being right than about being, you know, in the truth. But the intellectual virtue of humility is, as has been defined by Linda Zegzebski, who's written on intellectual virtue, uh, she says that a, an intellectual virtue is a habit of mind that is more likely to lead you to the truth. Mm. And I, you just have to care more about getting to the truth than about being perceived as correct. And the other thing about intellectual virtue is, is that they have a, they're shadowed by intellectual vices, and pride is the opposite of humility, and that is a habit of mind that is more likely to keep you from getting to the truth. And the Bible has all sorts of bad things to say about pride, so I, I don't want to go there. And, and by the way, if I may, I just read a book by J.A. Metters that's called Humble Calvinism. Mm. And that book has given me hope that anyone, <laughs> even Calvinists, could become more humble. <laughs> and uh, he opens his book with a story about Jesus showing a newcomer to heaven, his house with many rooms. And so he points out a room that's getting very noisy, and that's where the charismatic Christians are. There are other Christian families in other rooms. But there's one door, he imagines, with, that's closed. And Jesus uh, motions the newcomer to be quiet. So the newcomer asks, who's in there? And the Lord explains, the Calvinists are in there, and they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> but the book is really a plea for humble Calvinism. And again, what I think he gets right is this, that Cal what, what turns some people off from Calvinism is not the theology, but it's the Calvinists. It's this, you know, attitude that, of course, we're right. Who else could be right? Mm. Again, just to go back to how I started, I think the manner of our witness must correspond to the matter to which we bear witness. And the matter to which we bear witness is the humility of the Son, who poured himself out even to the point of death on a cross. Mm. Kevin, you know, it's, it's uh, no small coincidence in light of what you just said about humility and uh, that anecdote about uh, Calvinism. It's no small coincidence that uh, this is the year 2019. That's the anniversary year of the Canons of Dort. And, uh, you know, perhaps some of our listeners are thinking, well, you know, surely that has nothing to do with humility. Uh, I, I remember one of the first times uh, I read the Canons, I was shocked. Uh, because I discovered, as much as they talked about uh, these doctrines of grace, as we call them, these canons were also so concerned with piety, and with piety, mm. defeating pride and cultivating humility, and uh, essentially, they don't say it in this, this many words, but uh, essentially, uh, by the end of those canons, one of the things that comes across is 
uh, it's actually uh, a contradiction of sorts to uh, be a, uh, a reformed Calvinist type person and not have humility because uh, if it is by grace alone, then we should be the most humble people that walk the earth. Uh, so ironic, I suppose, ironic, but uh, your words are um, a, a very important point that, uh, well, n- no matter what discipline it is, um, whether it's systematics, whether it's New Testament, perhaps you're a pastor in the local church or, or, or just a church goer, uh, no matter who you are, uh, the, the theology that uh, we, stand, we stand upon is to be one that cultivates uh, a godliness and a humility within us and within the church at large. Kevin, what a, what a treat, really, to have you on the Credo Podcast. I would just say to our listeners, uh, as we close, if you've never read any of Kevin's books, um, well, please go pick up uh, any number of them. The Drama of Doctrine, Is There Meaning in This Text? Uh, A more recent book, Biblical Authority After Babel. Uh, If you want to jump into the deep end, I recommend Remythologizing Theology uh, as as an excellent uh, entryway into uh, how the doctrine of God connects to so many other doctrines of the faith. Kevin, uh, it's been a delight to have you on the Credo Podcast. Thank you for your hospitality, Matthew. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts To join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.